0: Good morning, church family. How are you doing today? So good to see you. I'm Josh, one of the ministers here. If you are a guest, welcome to the family here at Clear Creek. And if you're online joining us, welcome as well. We're in the middle of a teaching series through the book of Revelation. Before we get into that, though, just want to make you aware of uh, one quick thing. Troy Bowman, many of you will know his name. He was a uh, longtime former member of the church, moved to Texas a number of years back and has now gone into hospice care. So if you know Troy or the Bowman family, send out some love and prayers for them. As I know, they will appreciate that. Now, Revelation. It's one of those books that when you look at it, what could be so difficult? And then you start to read the thing and you go, oh, that's why. Yet it is the only book in the New Testament promised to give a blessing to those who read it, and those who do something with what they read. And so because of that, we have endeavored to walk through this epic book that has divided Christians and caused questions for over 2,000 years, but today our goal is not to create uh, questions, but rather to bring about clarity for what God would have us to do today. But I need to warn you, we're in the middle of it now. All the easy-to-figure-out stuff, it's gone, it's over. We are now in the white water rapids. Do not lean too far to the right or to the left because you will capsize the boat. We are in the middle of it. In fact, you say, middle of what? Well, let me show you. Here's a simple outline to the book of Revelation. In fact, you can write it on a napkin in less than five seconds. Here is the book of Revelation. You're welcome. Right? The first por- par- uh, portion that we have, and the last portion, we kind of agree on, we understand it. Chapters 1 through 5, that's about the bigness of God. Jesus shows up in all of his majesty. He speaks to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and then there's a worship scene in heaven in chapters 4 and 5 showing that God is on the throne. Yeah! And then chapter 19 through 22-ish is pretty clear as well. It's the judgment scene, it's hell, it's heaven, and it's the fate of every human who's ever lived. Again, we got it. The problem is we aren't sitting at one of those two book ends. We're right now in what I think of as the mushy middle of chapter 6 through 18. And it's just like... Pfft. This is where all the symbolism comes hard and fast. But here's how I want to simplify it for you. A basic outline of this portion, chapter 6 through 18, can be understood with three numbers. Seven, seven, seven. There are seven seals that were opened by Jesus... There will now be seven trumpets blown by seven angels. And then there will be seven bowls, seven judgments poured out by some angels as well. Seven, seven, seven. And we're about to talk about all sorts of things, including this thing called the beast and this number of the beast. And we're going to talk about some other stuff. I think we need to pray. At least your preacher needs to pray before he starts preaching this morning. So will you bow with me and go to the Father? Lord Jesus, we thank you. That you saw fit to share with us this wild revelation of who you are. I confess that for far too long I've been afraid of this book. And so I've not studied it. I've not paid attention. But Lord, as, as you've granted me time and as we have time as a family. And I pray that you will show us it is not there to scare us or intimidate us. But encourage us with the singular message that Jesus is Lord. And all others fail as second-rate competitors. So this morning, as we open this, I pray that you will cut through the fog. Holy Spirit, go before us in the text. Show us what we need to see so that Jesus will be made much of in this room and in our lives this week. We pray this now in the name of the risen one, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you ready? If you have some... Paper, you may want to write some of this down because we're going to walk through this. Now, I've shown you the outline. Let me give you two ways to view the book of Revelation. And I'm doing this as an explanation so you understand sort of the way we will approach the next few weeks in this series. There are two main ways when you read the book of Revelation. The first one is what we might call sequence or sequentially. This means that you have seven, seven, seven happening in order. So seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. So this group of seven events happens. And then when they're done, the next group of seven happen. And then when they're done, the next group of seven happen. And by the way, this is not necessarily the wrong way to read it. It could be correct. I'll tell you, though, it has some problems. Because there will be certain things that happen here that talk about up here. And something will happen here that refers back to here. And then this one refers up to here. And then this one to here. And it looks like some sort of... Football chart on how you're going to run a play it gets very confusing very fast and it seems to contradict itself when you read it this way at points That's why I agree with those who say the better way to read this crazy book Is not sequentially but stacked that what we're seeing is a group of seven events Shown three different times. It's like after a major catastrophe, maybe a hurricane or an earthquake, and the reporter goes out and he begins to interview this person and then this person and this person. What did you see? What did you experience? And they give different details based on their perspective. It's almost like God has one picture he wants us to see, and he's giving it to us in three different ways so we get it deeper and deeper. And the reason he wants us to get this is because what he's going to do in the end will not matter to us as much. If we don't understand the reason why he's doing it. And one of the other reasons we tend to believe that this is how to read this section of the book of Revelation is because there are certain things that happen here in a repeating pattern. For instance, I'll just give you a couple. At the end of the second seal, or excuse me, the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl, there's a break in the action. Something happens right here. Go ahead and put that up there, Andy. And so you'll have things rolling along, then they stop. And then they complete. They're rolling along, they stop, they complete. They roll along, they stop, they complete. And the seventh of all three of these is Judgment Day. It's just depicted slightly differently. So there seems to be this repeating pattern. Here's the way to think of where we're going. How many of you have ever walked down a spiral staircase? Anyone? Other than for making you dizzy, here's what you know. You feel like you're walking in place, but in fact... You're just going deeper and deeper and deeper into what you are already going toward. Does this make sense? It's almost as though God doesn't want to take us to a different place. He simply wants to take us to a deeper place of understanding. And so today we're going to look at the seven trumpets briefly. And then I want us to get into some weird little bits that some of you have asked me about. And hopefully we can bring it to where you live today. So... The seven seals have been broken. Christ has revealed what will happen. The motifs of history and how things are rolling to God's ultimate conclusion. And now, seven trumpets are about to be sounded. It says this in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 6. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Now, why trumpets? Well, here's why. Trumpets in the ancient world were used to warn To warn of an attack from an enemy, to warn of impending doom. This is God's way of warning the nations, it will not go well for you if you do not turn. This is God's warning, and we will see it is also God's witness. So let's walk very quickly. The first five of these trumpets refer back to and seem to parallel five of the ancient plagues that Moses brought through God, or God brought through Moses to the Egyptian people. So for instance, you have hail. You have, well, what else we have? Blood, poison water, darkness. And my favorite, demon locusts. <laughs> Revelation, we don't just get locusts, we get demon locusts. By the way, some people who view this sequentially will look for patterns, they'll look at their headlines, and they'll say, oh, this event seems to go back to that moment in the book of Revelation. I think that is talking about this. Let me give you an example. In the 1960s and 70s, do you know how many people interpreted the passage about the demon locus? They believe the demon locusts referred to the helicopters over Vietnam. So here's what I want you to know. We're not going to pick on people who view this differently because they may be right. I could be completely wrong on the stacked view, but here's what I want you to see. I think God wants to take us deeper than simply what is one event happening there and happening here. Because I don't believe God spoke to seven churches in peril in the first century and say, Fellas... These first three chapters are for you, last few chapters are for you, but everything else, eh, ignore it, it's for people who live thousands of years later. Rather, God has a message for all of his people throughout history. So it begins with plagues, the way of describing what is to come, the unraveling of creation because of our sin and God's judgment on that sin. The sixth trumpet is blown, and it looks to be a similar parallel to maybe the four horsemen from the seals, if you remember that from a couple of weeks ago. But here's the problem, although God warns people over and over and over, in fact, how often, if you just look at what's going on in our world today, how many warnings is God bringing to us today? I mean, anyone else finding that they can't put their hope exclusively in their income anymore? Anyone else over the past few years learned that they can't put their hope exclusively in their health? God allows, and I believe in times causes certain things for us to go. We are not God; you are God, and for us to repent. But notice what happens: do the people repent? We're told in chapter, excuse me, chapter nine, verse twenty, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still say these three words with me: did not repent. Now, by the way, oh, Old Testament scholars. In the book of Exodus, when Moses goes and does the plagues, someone else didn't repent. Who was that? Do you remember? Pharaoh doesn't repent. It's almost as though, even though God brings warning after warning, hard hearts often remain hard even with the warnings of God. And so now, there's a break in the action. After the sixth trumpet is blown, we have one of those breaks. And God tries something else to bring about the reconciliation of all humanity. He begins to, well, he sends a couple of witnesses. In fact, these two witnesses are very unique individuals. Now, people always want to know, who are the witnesses? Short answer... I don't know. No one does. There are some hints, though, in the text that people have used to try to identify them. Let me show them to you. There's two passages. It talks about who these witnesses are. It says that they, these witnesses, have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain now. Before we show you who this might be, Bible scholars, Old Testament character. There's a prophet of God who had to pray for God to bring the rain again. Do you know who this prophet was? Elijah. So some will say, ah, one of the two witnesses is Elijah, the prophet. And then the second? And they have power to turn the waters into blood. Wow, who does that sound like? And to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Again, who does that sound like, church? Well, that sounds like Moses, doesn't it, with the ten plagues? So some people have said, ah, are you saying that in the end, at the very end of the end of the end, God will resurrect somehow and send Moses and Elijah to come and physically testify and witness to who God is. Maybe. But, but I think maybe there's something else going on here because there's one more little detail. Now, if you're sleeping, wake up because this is for you. He doesn't just call them or hint at Moses and Elijah. But the next thing he does, he says that these witnesses are actually lampstands. They are two lampstands. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of our teaching on the book of Revelation, then you will remember, I hope, that lampstands refer to the church in Revelation one twenty. So what is he saying here? Is he saying that God will raise up two specific people? I don't know. But what I think, and I agree with those who understand all of this to be, that God is showing that there have been and there will be and there are going to be faithful witnesses throughout history from those back in the Old Testament now in through the church age. We're living in the church age who will stand up and speak up to the truthfulness of who God is and the glory of God and His Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's what I believe is going on here, that this is a call not just to some but to all to witness to who Jesus is by the way, a little fun fact. Jesus, when he talks about the Old Testament, he calls it the law and the prophets. Moses was given the law of God and wrote the law in the first five books of the Old Testament. Elijah, as the greatest prophet, is representative of all prophets. So Jesus, when he talks about the totality of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, you have Moses and Elijah. This symbolizes the faithful, the old, and the church and the church. The faithful of the new, those who follow Jesus and witness to him. Now, we want to think that now everything is okay because we have people witnessing to the goodness of God. But if you have lived more than five minutes, you know that just because someone uses the name of Jesus, not everyone else approves or agrees with it. Am I right, Jimmy? And so what you end up with is something bad about to happen. Notice what happens to these two witnesses. It says that the beast, next slide, yeah, The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Is it true? Say yes. Is it true that sometimes the church is harmed for witnessing who Jesus is? Is that true, church? Yeah. And if you don't know that, then friends, I would invite you to begin to explore what's happening to our brothers and sisters around the globe right now. They read this and they go, yes, that is true. There is a beast and he is attacking. And sometimes he gets us. But then there's this beautiful word of hope for anyone who feels attacked for their faith. Because in the very next phrase it says this, but after the three and a half days, by the way, this three and a half is a motif you see throughout Revelation. Could it be literal three and a half days? Sure. But more likely it is referring to a defined period of time, meaning the enemy doesn't get final say forever. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. You know what this is saying? For all who've been knocked down for their faith in Jesus Christ, there will come a day where God breathes new life in you, whether in this life or the next his kids will rise and they will stand on their feet. Friends, the enemy does not get the final word. And Revelation over and over again says that, yes, there is an enemy, but there is a great God above all things who wins in the end. So no matter what you're facing, you feel knocked down because of your faith in Jesus, he will lift you up in due time. This is not the end. Of, the story not over for you. In fact, isn't it true that sometimes it's the moments that are hardest that bring the most people to faith? In fact, notice the next phrase we see after this. It says, at that very hour, the earth's survivors gave glory to the God of heaven. In other words, what the plagues could not bring about. What the judgment of the horsemen could not bring about. The testimony of self-sacrificing love from the people of God brought about and it's not because you and I have power, it's rather, it's, it's in our self-sacrificing testimony. When we give of ourselves, when we give of our preference or our position or our status and culture for the glory of God, and we talk about what He has done through us, it's in those moments the goodness of God gets to just shine like a spotlight through your life. And people come to faith, as you share. We talked about this last week. Some of you... If you've been around Clear Creek for any length of time, you'll remember a number of years back, we did this thing called the Cardboard Testimonials. How many of you, by the way, remember that? Anyone here? Yeah. And so over the course of this time, people would write who they were on one side, then flip it over on the other side, this is who I am now. And so this week on social media, I asked the question, in one or two words, can you share a time that God was faithful, even in a dark point? And I love so many of the answers that many of you shared. Things like these. God was faithful when my spouse suddenly died. God was faithful through my breast cancer. God was faithful even when I was battling addiction. Boy, isn't it good to know God doesn't leave you on your own to figure out how to get through what you're going through. God was faithful when my family abandoned me. God was faithful through my infertility journey. What a pregnant statement that is. What story, what background is there to know God is still with you, even when you are broken-hearted after you're attending your umpteenth baby shower and you've been begging God for your own child. But God is faithful. And then God is faithful. A friend of mine, she spoke of how God is faithful when a friend, a very close person to her, had brain damage. God is faithful. With a surprise pregnancy, God is faithful even in a job termination. How do you have joy when you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from and you say, I trust God, I will witness to who he is, the faithfulness of God. It's in that moment that people see what all the good moments in your life do not hold a candle to how God works through the difficult moments of your life. And so, maybe for some of us here, we, would just, we wouldn't say these things. We would just put up here, I'm with him. He's with me and I'm with him. That's the story. He's with me and I'm with him. Throughout all the stuff that has happened, he's with me and I'm with him. This is the story. By the way, that word witness in the Greek comes from a word martyres. What does that sound like? martyr, the witness of God's people. Now, this brings up an interesting point, doesn't it? We heard about this other little character named the Beast. And I'm not talking about the big hairy guy who sings along with Belle and has enchanted furniture, okay? The Beast were... anyone catch that reference? Some of you, okay, my, my fellow 90s kids, all right. So, the Beast appears and he attacks the beloved of God. But here's what's interesting in chapter 13. Now we're moving ahead in the story. Chapter 12, we have met this one called the dragon. He is the devil himself coming after God's beloved. And he begins in chapter 13 to do his work through earthly characters and actors, people on earth who will fulfill the mission of the dragon. And there are two that he brings out. The first comes from the sea and the second from the land. Both are given power by the dragon in chapter 13. I invite you to read the chapter later this week. And what's interesting is the first beast, all he wants is to be worshipped. That's why I told you in week 1, 2, and 3 that this book is about worship. Who will you worship? Because there are those who want nothing more than to be worshipped. And the second beast, from the land, he is the prophet. He is the one who points to the beast and says, Worship the beast. Fun fact that... Prophet beast, the one from the land, it says that he has these cute little lamb horns. He looks like the lamb. But he speaks with a voice like the dragon. Isn't it true that in our world, many will try to paint what is wicked and evil as something righteous and good? And so they come. Now, here's what you need to know. If you and I were sitting together in a house church in the first century by candlelight reading this letter and we hear of a beast coming from the sea, we would have all gone, you don't mean it. You say, well, what's the big deal that he came from the sea? See, they would remember their Old Testament, and there's that moment in the book of Daniel, one of the great prophets of God, he sees a vision in Daniel chapter 7. You can read it later this week. God shows him a vision. Daniel standing along the seashore. The breeze, the smell of the water, the sound of the surf lapping the seashore, and there coming out of the water are four grotesque, terrifying beasts, one more horrible than the next. And Daniel is told these four represent four different kingdoms that will come on the earth, that will rule, whose rulers will want to be worshipped as God. And so if you are a student of history, you know who these four are. The first was Babylon, the nation that Daniel was under. Then came the Persians, then the Greeks, and now finally Rome, And so you hear the fourth beast has come out of the sea, and the people would have gasped. I knew it. This is the one. These are the final days. This is the enemy of God. Josh, are you saying this is the one and only beast? Not really, though. In fact, did you know that often we talk about the beast, we'll use another name for him. We call him the anti-what? Antichrist. Yeah, some of you have watched pop culture movies as well. The Antichrist. The baddest of the bad. The worst of the worst. Are you saying, Josh, there's one Antichrist who's coming on the scenes? No, friends, I'm not saying there's one because John doesn't say there's only one. Fun fact, did you know that Antichrist is never mentioned in the book of Revelation? He's mentioned in 1 John chapter 2 and in chapter 4. John the Apostle, who's writing this Revelation, tells us who the Antichrist is or gives us a picture of it. He says this, this is the last hour By the way, the last hour has been going on for 2,000 years. This is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. Many have come. What is he saying? He's saying that it's not simply a person, it is a personality it is not simply an individual, it is an identity. It is someone who opposes the work and the will of God. It is someone who says, my will be done, not thy will be done. He says, there will be many as there have been. Now some of you say, but isn't there one big bad guy? And the answer is, maybe. Maybe. But again, I would caution you from holding your headlines and your Bible together and trying to pick out the moments in time. Jesus says no one knows when he will come back. And these are simply some ways that we can kind of be prepared in the moment we find ourselves to not fall to the enemy, but to stand firm. By the way, did you know there have been many different people proposed to be the Antichrist throughout human history? Here's here's just a few of them. The first one... Domitian. He was the emperor at the time. Let me give you a few more. Mohammed, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Henry Kissinger, JFK, Ronald Reagan. Yes, all of these have been, at one time or another, accused of being the Antichrist. Let me give you a couple more. If you lived during the, uh, the, the Protestant Reformation, if you were the Pope, you were considered the Antichrist. If you were on the Protestant Reformation side. But if you were a Catholic, you thought Martin Luther and the Protestants were the Antichrist. It's all about where you stood. But you want to know my all-time favorite antichrist? Ready? The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Read in a book somewhere, some guys said, these are the antichrist. Here's my point. I agree with the scholar who says, pay more attention to the personality or the pattern and not the person. What kind of pattern do we see in someone who rejects Jesus? His calling is to say, you you don't go near anyone or any system or any grouping like that, but we are to have allegiance only to Jesus. Our hope is not in an elected person. Amen, church? Our hope is not in our own ability either, is it? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. So don't become the very thing that we are opposed to. Our allegiance is one and only to Jesus Christ. Now this beast is going to do something. He's going to mark all of his followers. This is not the only place that we have seen the marking. There's another place of 144,000 who worship the Lamb, and they are marked or sealed with the mark of the Lamb. Now we see the mark of the beast. Do you know what the number of the mark of the beast is, church? Six, six, six. Now, what does that have to do with anything? By the way, many people have wondered, well, what is the mark of the beast? I know there's a number, but what, like, how does it work? Is it like a computer chip that goes in your wrist? Or, or, or maybe, or maybe, as I was growing up, I had some people tell me, no, 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 the mark of the beast, you want to know what it is? The Social Security numbers. Because now the government knows where you are. Other people say, no, it is your banking number. It's your checking account number. Others have said, no, you want to know what it is? It's the barcode at the grocery store. ba dip. Mark of the beast. ba Because you can neither buy nor sell, it will say in the passage. Are those things the marks of the beast? Again, I don't think those are necessarily the marks. Rather, look for the pattern more than the person. And here's the pattern. Who is 666? Now, if you're a little Jewish boy or a little Jewish girl, you would like to play around with this thing where you would find letters... And numbers, and you'd correspond them together. By the way, did you know that the corresponding numbers for King David is four, six, four? Okay, there you go. I'll, I can explain that to you a little later. So, if you take, according to people who stay up late at night, worried about these things, they will tell you that if you take the official title of Nero the Caesar back about thirty years earlier, and the way that his title was stamped on the coin, if you take those letters, they correspond to. Six, six, six. So, So, Diggs, are you saying that Nero is the beast? What I'm telling you is that Nero was the first to brutally assault the church. He's the one who would light Christians on fire and have them burn for his nighttime parties. He was the one who would have Christians thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by wild animals to the cheers of the crowd. He was a wicked man, and so he becomes the stand-in for all of the emperors who demand worship as God. He becomes the image of the Antichrist, of the beast. But he's not the first beast, nor will he be the last. We've had many beasts. In fact, you want to know what the second B stands for, that's simply the propaganda machine that says, worship this guy, worship this system. And we've had them throughout history, haven't we? I'll give you an example. Now, this is an offensive example, warning. I'm going to show you something on screen here. But here's what I want you to know. Nazi Germany loved Christmas but had a real problem with Christmas because Christmas, at the heart of it, worships an infant Jewish boy. And you can't have that if you're going to try to ex- exterminate all of the Jews. And so they would put together pieces like this little piece of Christmas propaganda. And this video, this piece of propaganda was done about a hundred years ago. But they were trying to get rid of Jesus from Christmas. So now you have the Fuhrer, you have Hitler having Christmas tea with the little children. They would put Nazi soldiers in the nativity scenes. They were trying to get rid of the advent of Jesus Christ and elevate the advent of the Fuhrer. In fact, they rewrote words to beloved Christmas songs just to reinforce, this is the guy, worship him. This song you're hearing right now, Silent Night, they changed the lyrics and had a different version with these lyrics that say, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Only the Chancellor stands on guard Germany's future to watch and to ward, guiding our nation aright, guiding our nation aright. And do you see what's at the top of the Christmas tree? Friends, I cannot imagine a more blasphemous or demonic image than what we just saw. And yet, this is the propaganda. Worship Him. Don't worship the Lamb. Worship Him. Don't worship Jesus Christ. Worship Him. Don't worship that little boy who was born to take away the sins of the world. And John says, don't have anything to do with people who take your gaze off of Jesus Christ. The number seven is the perfect number in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Right? Yeah? Heads, if you've been here more than a week... So, 777, seven, seven, it's perfection, perfection, perfection. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. God's perfect plan, complete plan. Here it is. So, the number six, it's little less than perfect. It's broken. By the way, humans were created on the sixth day of creation. So, the number 666, six, six, yes, Nero, but it's also symbolic for total brokenness. It's not perfection times perfection times perfection, it is brokenness times brokenness, times brokenness, evil, times evil, times evil. It's not Jesus, not Jesus, not Jesus. And he says, have nothing to do with the. Instead, be the faithful witnesses to the goodness of God. Do not trust the enemy's lies, my friends. He will dress it up and look good, but he is an enemy who wants nothing than to kill, steal, and destroy. So the point of this whole section, are you ready? Here's the bottom line worship Jesus run from the beasts worship Jesus run from anyone who would draw your attention off of Jesus and when the moment is called upon you you be a faithful witness to the goodness of God share what he has done now I know when we talk about this it can be scary so I want to end with one Bible verse of comfort to you. Are you ready? Here it is. I want you to see this from Paul's words in Acts chapter 17. Paul says, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he... Wait, wait. What's, what's that word right there? What, what's that word, church? Oh, he marked. He chose. He designs and he defines... Their appointed time in history. So he marked where you would, when you would live. And the boundaries of their lands. He chose when you would live. Why did God do this? So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. What am I telling you? Church, don't be afraid. Don't shrink. You were made for these times. God picked the place and the time you would live. You are not made for some other time. You are made for this moment. So whoever the beast may be, whatever system the beast may be, whatever group and ideology the beast may be, you be the faithful witness. Why? Because God puts you here at this time, at this place, to be a witness, and he is not far from you. He will raise you up.